I'd like to have you turn to the book of Genesis, which is always an appropriate place to begin a study in uh, the scriptures because the book of Genesis is the beginning. That's what the term means. Our, uh, our title, Genesis, is based on the title of the earliest translation, Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, and it simply means beginning. The, um, the Jews named the book from the first word of the book, Barshit, which means in the beginning, and uh, so their name for it, their title for it, is very similar to ours. So it is a good place uh, to begin the story of, of God's plan to bring salvation to the world, which is really what the scriptures are all about. Uh, I'm really glad that God has a plan. As you look around at, at the events of our day, we sometimes wonder if, uh, if God does have a plan. Things seem to be so helter-skelter and meaningless, and men seem to be getting away with such, uh, uh, such terrible things. And we wonder if God knows what's going on, and is he in control? And I think sometimes even as Christians, we become very anxious and uh, perplexed about the direction of human history. But history does have a plan. There's a little limerick that goes, The world had a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end to God's glory, but at present the other side's winning. But uh, that's not true. God is winning. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And he also has a wonderful plan for history. And the beginning of that plan is, is given to us here in the book of, uh, of Genesis. Now, as you know, we're going to try to dovetail these studies with the Sunday School Hour and uh, give you a chance to take at least two good looks at uh, these, these sections of Genesis that we'll be studying. First in a class where you'll have a chance to discuss it among yourselves, and then here... Uh, on Sunday morning and get uh, two perspectives on the same passage of Scripture and perhaps increase your depth of understanding of these, these portions of the book of Genesis. I'll be publishing an outline of some sort each week, and uh, you have one in your, in your bulletin along with a map on the back, so if you want to pull it out, you can refer to it from time to time. Genesis is really part of a five-volume set. As you well know, it's only the beginning of the five books that we call the Pentateuch. The word Pentateuch just means five scrolls or five books. And they comprise that comprises the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So it's a continuing story from Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, according to these books, Moses was the author. Uh, authorship is attributed to him internally by the books themselves and traditionally until 100 years ago. Everyone believed that to be the case. But uh, for me, as a Christian, the issue is really settled by our Lord's words and the words of the apostles. They attribute these first five books to, to Moses. And since Christ is Lord, I'm really not at liberty to question his view of the authorship of these books. There may be some problems, but uh, if he said Moses wrote it, then I have to accept it. I have, over the past few years, studied with men who don't accept the authorship, the mosaic authorship of these books. Now, I understand their point of view, and, and uh, I know uh, what, uh, what bases they have for it. 
But my conviction is that it's really based on unbelief. Their convictions are based on unbelief. The uh, book of Genesis, as a matter of fact, all of the Pentateuch contains predictions, very clear predictions of the future of a monarchy, a king, and a central sanctuary, that is, one place of worship, the temple. And in their, in their worldview, these more radical theologians, liberal theologians, they can't handle prediction. You just can't have that sort of thing going on. So you can't have Moses authoring these books. It has to, the author has to come somewhat later in the 10th century with the beginning of the monarchy. So I, I don't want to go into a long, uh, tedious description and explanation of their point of view, except to say that the reason uh, Moses is denied the authorship of these books is because of unbelief, not because of any uh, careful literary analysis that people have made. So for our point of view as Christians, we just believe that Moses wrote it, despite some of the problems, because Jesus said so. Uh, now, let's take a look first at Genesis. I don't like to do overviews. They're hard for me to do. But it's necessary for me to, to, to give you the big picture of the book of Genesis. And then we'll come back next week and we'll start with Genesis 1 and we'll, we'll work our way through over the next 12 weeks. But uh, bear with me while I, try, while I try to give you a summary view of, of, this, uh, of this book. As uh, indicated in your notes, the book divides into two units. Uh, the first 11 chapters center around events, and we'll call this, for lack of a better name, pre-patriarchal, the pre-patriarchal period because it precedes the time of the patriarchs. And, uh, and the story revolves around key events, creation in chapters 1 and 2, and the fall, chapters 3 and 4, the flood, chapters 5 through 9, and the dispersion or the Tower of Babel, uh, chapters 10 and, and 11. Then you begin the patriarchal accounts with Abraham in chapter 12, and his story continues on through chapter 26, and then uh, his son, Isaac, and then Isaac's son, Jacob, and then the story of the 12 sons of Jacob in the closing chapters, and in in most of 37 through 50 is taken up with the story of Joseph. Uh, the point of the Joseph story is that God had prepared before a place in Egypt for his nation, as we'll see in a moment. But that's, uh, in, in brief, the, the direction that uh, the book of Genesis is going. Now let's look at it in some detail. Chapters 1 and 2 are a description of creation. And uh, all I want to say about these two chapters at this point is that it, uh, the point of, of the creation story is that God loves us. We're very special to him. When you compare this story with some of the accounts that were circulating uh, at the time the book of Genesis was written, you'll see very clearly that that's the point of the story. We'll try to do some of this next week for you, but uh, the point is that God loves people. And he created the world for people because people are, are God's most important product. Chapter 1 describes the importance of man chronologically because he's the last in the order of creation. God creates a perfect universe and he puts man in it as the last of his created uh, acts, creation acts. Because man is important. God loves to make things for man. I, I love to make things with my hands and and it's especially fun when I'm making things for Carolyn or, or, or one of the boys. You put a lot of special care into things that are for people that are special to you, and that's the point of creation. 
And as we'll see next week, it ought to change our perspective about the way we look at, at our environment and our, all, all, the, all of creation around us. So chapter 1 is a description of creation with the importance of man highlighted from a chronological viewpoint. Chapter 2 is a parallel account which basically does the same thing. It tells us that man is important, but here it's from a logical standpoint. He creates the whole world in a special garden, and he puts man in that very special place. So logically, man is the, is the apex of, of God's creation, the most important thing in it, and he lavishes all this care on, on man. It's sort of interesting. In the Babylonian accounts, the paradise was for the gods. They created paradise so they could have it, have it easy. But in the creation account, it's for man. It's for us. That's a different point of view than any than any other uh, creation account in the ancient world. God loves us. But uh, as we know from chapters three and following, man took that uh, that perfect environment and he just ruined it. Which is what we're always doing when you think about it. We take all of God's good gifts and we use them for ourselves. And that's what man did. The serpent insinuated himself into the scene and he seduced the woman. And she in turn passed the, the responsibility on to her husband who, who passed up his responsibility entirely. And the whole race was plunged into, into sin. All of God's creation fell with man. But right in the middle of this awful scene, you have verse 15, chapter 3, verse 15, where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and hers. He will crush your head, you will crush his heel. The he there, he will crush your head, refers to the offspring of the woman. The offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. But the serpent will injure the man. It's a picture of a man stamping on the head of a, of a, of a venomous uh, snake and uh, dealing a lethal blow to the snake, destroying it, but at the same time bruising his heel. The serpent would be destroyed, but at, at cost to the man. He would inflict pain upon himself in order to destroy the serpent. Now, theologians call this passage the first gospel, the protevangel. This is the first statement of the gospel. Here in the midst of this awful scene, man losing his, his, uh, his right to immortality, being cast out of this paradise, and everything is going wrong, and God begins to set things right. He says it will be through his man, who will be the seed of the woman. History's been looking for that, uh, was looking for that man uh, ever since, as we'll see. A lot of their literature reflects their desire that, that someone come to set things right. Uh, most of you have heard of, of the man Zoroaster, who founded the Zoroastrian religion. His name means seed of the woman. He thought that he was the fulfillment of this promise, and of course he was not. It was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, the seed of the woman. So the point of this section of Genesis is that at the very beginning, God gives hope. It's like reading the end of the book before you get into the plot. Carolyn's been reading uh, a book recently, and she did something she says she's never done before. She was so confused by the book, she went to the end, and she read the last chapter so she could understand what was going on in the middle of the book. 
And that's what God does for us here. He tells us the last chapter that, that the serpent is going to be destroyed. It would cause pain, but the serpent would be, uh, would be dealt a lethal blow. Now, chapter 4, you have the story of uh, the birth of Cain. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now, she thought that this man was the man who would stamp on the head of the serpent. But he wasn't. We all get excited at the birth of uh, a first child, and you have to realize this was the first child ever to be born on the face of the earth. And she was so excited when this little boy came into the world, and she, this is the one. This is the one that will deliver us. But he was a son of Adam. He was fallen just like his father. And far from being part of the solution, he was part of the problem. He murdered his brother. That's how far he was from solving the, from saving humanity. He was a killer. And that, of course, has been the story of mankind ever since. We've been looking for someone to solve the problem, and, and everyone who's born is simply a part of it. And that's the point of chapter 4, that sin has entered into the race, as Paul puts it. For us by one man centered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed through all men in that all sin. The fact that men die is an indication that we're all afflicted by sin. I have a friend, Jack Arnold, that I knew back in my seminary days, and uh, when he had, his, uh, he had a couple of children, and we didn't have any. And I went over to, to see him one day, and, and uh, he brings out his new baby, and he says, uh, here he is. And, you, you know, you try to think of something appropriate to say. And I said, well, he's a nice kid. And uh, Jack says, no, he's just a little son of Adam. Now, that's a terrible thing to say about your little boy. But uh, he was right. And having had three myself, I, I can agree. And my mother would say the same thing about me. We're all just sons of Adam. We're all part of the problem. And that's what, that's what uh, Eve discovered. She was the mother of all living, but it wasn't her immediate descendant uh, who would set things right. The war would have to wait. However, uh, Eve uh, kept on hoping. In verse 25 of that chapter, Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. The word means appointed or established. Saying, God has granted or established or appointed to me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. She was still hoping. Seth had a son, and he named him Enosh. The word Enosh means weak or fragile or frail. And, and you see, men begin to get the point that all men were weak and prone to failure and sin, and they weren't the answer. And at that time, we read, men began to call on the name of the Lord. They, be, they began to stop trusting men and to count on the Lord. So you have, in chapter 4, the beginning of two races. You have the descendants of Cain and their attempts to build a civilization, and there's some extremely uh, interesting uh, events recorded there about man's ability, what he can do with his hands, what he can create and make, and his artistic faculties and so forth. But, but flanked with all of man's advantages is a picture of, of the abuses that you find in civilization with murder and hatred and and deceit and resentment and bitterness. Uh, and that's the kind of city that man builds. So you have the descendants of Cain, 
and the sort of city that they built, but then you have another line of weak men who recognize that they cannot do it themselves, that the works of their hands are never going to uh, set things right, that God has to set things right, and so they begin to call on the name of the Lord. Then in chapter 5, you have a, the written account of this line of faith, those who call on the name of the Lord, beginning with Adam in verse 3, traced down through Enoch in verse 24, to Noah, verse 29. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands. Now, this is the line of faith, and there's some notable men in this line. The purpose of this chapter is not to give us a detailed history of all the events that took place over this vast span of time. No one knows how long this period uh, uh, chronicles, but it was a long period of time, except to note just a couple of men like Enoch who walked with the Lord. It says that Enoch walked with God after Methuselah was born. Methuselah's name means, apparently, when he dies, it will come. And uh, enshrined in this little boy's name was a prediction of the flood, that at his death the flood would come. And, And apparently that was revealed to Enoch, that God was going to judge humanity. And Enoch walked with God after that and named his little boy. Uh, when he dies, it shall come in memory of that of that prediction. And and by the way, Methuselah lived longer than anyone else. He lived 969 years, which is an indication of the grace of God. He waited and waited and waited. That's why Methuselah lived so long. Because God patiently waited while Noah and other men preached this first gospel to them. And then the flood came. And in chapter 6 and following... Down through chapter 9, you have the account of the flood with Noah and his seven, uh, and the seven members of his family, the only survivors. God wiped out humanity. And uh, we're not told in great detail what the world was like during that time, but apparently there was nothing salvageable, there was nothing redeemable. Everyone had turned their back on God except Noah and his family. Noah, of all the race, found favor in God's sight because he called on the name of the Lord. And the story of that destruction and Noah's salvation is given to us in those chapters. Then in chapter 10, you have what's called the table of nations or the distribution of people from the Tower of Babel. You have three descendants of Noah described here, the Japhethites in verse 1. These are the Indo-European people, those who settled in Europe and in India and to the north, if you want to take a look at your map, the area uh, here where the Hittites live, which is modern-day Turkey, and on into Europe, and over to the right, or the east, the Caspian Sea, and on into India. This is where the descendants of Japheth settled, and their names are given to us in verse 2, Gomer. That's not Gomer Pyle. That's... uh, he was the, the, the father of the Salts or the Gauls, the people that settled in France and then eventually in, in Britain. And Magog and Madai, the Medes. You can see the Medes on your map uh, off to the right just below the Caspian Sea. Javan were the Ionians, the people that settled in the area around Greece uh, and so forth. We'll, we'll look at these in more detail when we get to chapter 10. So these are the Indo-European people. Then you have a second class of people, the Hamites. In verse 6, the sons of Ham, Cush, that's the Ethiopians, Mitzrayim, the Egyptians, Put, the Libyans, 
and the Canaanites and so forth. And these were the people that settled in the south, here in the Nile Delta, in North Africa, and along the coast in the crosshatch section that's designated Palestine. They settled there. Then you have a third division of mankind, the Semites, in verse 22, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram, and so forth. These were the Semitic people that settled in Mesopotamia, that is this heavy, uh, the broader area of the Fertile Crescent here, the Mitanni, the people that settled in Aramea and Akkad, uh, Babylonia, and so forth. These were Semitic people. These were the descendants of Shem. And it was through this line that God proposed to bring salvation. Back in chapter 9, verse 26, Noah said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. That was the godly line. The God that the, that the, the uh, Semitic people, the Shemites, worshipped. And salvation would come through that line. So it's through the line of Semites that salvation would come to the world. And then in chapter 11, in verses 10 through 26, you have that line traced from Shem down through a bunch of people whose names have long since been forgotten, Arphaxad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, and so forth, down in verse 26 to Abram, whose name we recognize. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Uh, just an interesting thing. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it is of interest. Uh, if you look through this line in verse 16, when Eber lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. Some of you have read about these tablets that were found in Syria at Tel Marduk, the Eblite uh, texts. They found a king by the name of Eber, or Ebrum is the way it's pronounced in, uh, in Eblite. And uh, before Eber, all the names of the people who, that they are rec- the, whose names are recorded on tablets are combinations with pagan gods, El and others. But after Eber, they're all combinations with the word Yah, which is the shortened form of Yahweh. And that's just interesting. We don't know if the Eber who is the king of, of Ebla is this Eber or not, or if they're closely related. But the significant thing is that from that time on, there appear to be people living in Ebla who worship the Lord who eventually became the Lord God of Israel. So there was a line of faith that was traced from Noah, uh, pardon me, from Adam, through Seth, uh, down to Noah, and then to Abram. These were men who who called on the name of the Lord. Now in chapter 12, you have the beginning of the patriarchal period. Are you still with me? Everybody awake? Okay. In chapter 12, we begin with the call of Abram. And we'll just move rapidly through the rest of the patriarchal period. Don't panic. I'm not going to cover the rest of the book of Genesis in the same detail. But I want you to see uh, how the line moved through these, uh, these godly men uh, from Abram's time on. Now, I want to begin reading with, uh, with chapter 12, the first three verses. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him. Now Abram is just an ordinary sort of fellow. His name 
Abram or uh, similar names occur all over the, the Near East. It's like our name John or Paul or Jack or Sue. It's just a very common name. And, uh, and yet this, this is a man that God chose. He probably lived in Ur of the Chaldees. Now, if you look at your map, you'll see Sumer off to the lower right, and just to the right is the city of Ur. And we know what life was like during the time that Abram lived. Abram is the first man that we can date with any precision. He lived during the time that's it's of no consequence, but it's called the Ur Three period. The thing that is consequential about it is that this was a time of great progress on the part of civilization. Most people were literate. They were writing beautiful poetry. They were sculpting uh, beautiful pieces of uh, sculpture. Uh, the, the pyramids had been built uh, 500 years before, so this was a time of technological advance, and people were very sophisticated. Abram was a, was a city dweller. He was an urban man, a very sophisticated man. And God called him out of that setting to the, to the, the worst spot on the face of the earth, Canaan, and said, be a blessing there. And we ask, why Canaan? What's so significant about that little piece of real estate? It's a tiny little place. It's about 100 miles long, 40 miles wide at its widest point. Why, why Palestine or Canaan? Well, this is why. If you look at your map, the descendants of Japheth were in the north. The descendants of Ham were in the south, around Africa, North Africa. The descendants of Shem were over in Mesopotamia, near the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. If you lived in, uh, oh, Babylonia, and you wanted to travel to Egypt... You didn't travel cross-country, despite the roads that are marked on this map. These are later roads, because that was that's desert. That's the Arabian desert. No one traveled that way. You traveled through the Fertile Crescent, down through the land of Canaan, and into Egypt. If you lived in uh, what today is Turkey, where the Hittites lived, and you had to travel to Egypt, you didn't catch uh, a ship and travel across the Mediterranean Sea. No mariner in his right mind went across the open seas in those days. Their boats weren't, their ships weren't made for that sort of thing. They hugged the coast, and you had to go through Canaan. Canaan is the bridge between all the great civilizations of that day. That God had had sovereignly acted even in the topography and the geography of that area, so that that was the only way to get from one place to the next. And God called this man Abram. And he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And I'm going to make your name great. And you're going to be a blessing. It's actually a, a command. Be a blessing. I'll bless you, he says. Now you be a blessing. So uh, Abram left Ur of the Chaldees over here to the right. And he traveled up through the Fertile Crescent. And he lived for a while in the area that's called uh, Aram Naharayim. And then down through the area that's uh, called Phoenicia here, into Palestine. And he stayed first in a little village called Shechem. And Genesis says very significantly that the Canaanites were there. Abram had a little tent, and he had an altar. And those were the two things that characterized his life. 
The ten indicated his, uh, his lack of involvement in the civilizations of, those t- of that time. Abram, the only piece of land that Abram ever bought was a grave site for Sarah. Didn't buy any land, didn't build any cities, never built a house. He lived in a tent. Never put his roots down into that society. He stayed at Shechem for a while. Archaeologists now at Shechem have found that the area where he was, there's a large uh, area, cult center out in front where they had their pagan worship, and it was centered around a great terebinth, a great oak tree. And uh, that apparently was the oak tree by which uh, Noah, uh, Abram pitched his tent. Right there in the middle of Canaanite society, he began to be a blessing. God said to Abram, those whom, who bless you will be blessed. Those who treat you lightly, that's the meaning of the word that's translated curse here, will be made sterile. He uses two words for curse. The first word means to treat something lightly. The second word means to make sterile. Well, what he's saying is this. Those who respond to your message, who bless you, who love you, will be blessed. Their lives will be made fertile, fruitful. They'll be enriched. That's the meaning of the word blessing. Those who treat you lightly, those who don't listen to you, their lives will be sterile and wasted. Abram lived in Shechem, and then he traveled up the ridge route. It's the only north-south route that we know about at that time. That's that, it was that far inland down to the little city of Bethel, and he pitched his tent there, and then on down to the Negev, and then a drought drove him down to Egypt. Why? Well, because the Egyptians were sterile too. They were worshiping dung beetles about that time. And crying out in despair, we have a lot of literature from what's called the intermediate period in Egypt when when they, they say things like this, where is the shepherd that will lead us out? They were in despair, total, absolute despair. God sends Abram down there and he pitches his tent. And, of course, you know what happened. He just integrated right into Egyptian society. And he, it was no blessing while he was there. But God called him back into Canaan. And as we look at his life, he, although he had failures, he's an example of what we ought to be in, a, in, a, in an unbelieving environment. He was a blessing to his times. But uh, as you look at Isaac, uh, Isaac's life, that's not so. He's less a blessing than Abram. He's sort of a second-generation believer. Uh, he loses something. His faith is not vital like Abram's faith. And then you come to Jacob, and Jacob's the old schemer. That's what his name means. The one who trips people up. A healer. The one who grabs them by the heel. And he schemed and connived, and he did everything. He pulled every trick in the trade to get his own way, and he's anything but a man of faith. Uh, it always strikes me significant that God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because God's not ashamed to be associated with schemers like Jacob. But nevertheless, Jacob was not a man of faith. And then you see in his 12 sons a further decline. Uh, instead of being a blessing on the land, they were a blight. They were a curse. The two uh, sons, uh, Manasseh and, or excuse me, uh, Levi and, and his brother Simeon go up to Shechem, where, where Abram had been such a blessing. And they annihilate the entire population. Kill them all. That's not being a blessing. And uh, Reuben, the firstborn, through whom the birthright and the, the line of succession should have gone, committed incest, slept with his, 
his father's concubine. It's just even in the patriarchal period, unheard of. And he was set aside. So instead of being a blessing, they were a curse. And instead of being uh, unique and set apart from the Canaanite world, they just assimilated themselves right into it. And they acted like the Canaanites. And they, they worshipped like the Canaanites do. And eventually, as you know, sold their brother into, into captivity. But in the sovereignty of God, that was God's preparation for what became the Canaanite cure because God took his people down into Egypt to get Canaanite uh, thinking out of their system. Uh, They no longer were a blessing in Canaan. They weren't fulfilling God's plan, and so God had to discipline them, and he took them down into Egypt, and that's where we find them at, at the end of the book of Genesis. The Egyptians didn't like Jacob and his friends, his clan. The Egyptians were anti-Semitists. They hated Semites, and we'll see why when we get to that section. They wouldn't even eat with them. That, likewise, was a part of God's sovereign plan because Israelites uh, worshipped idols from time to time, but they never worshipped Egyptian idols. The Egyptians never had anything to do with them. They segregated them, stuck them off in the the Delta area, and uh, had nothing whatever to do with them. But that was God's plan, because that's what cured them of their uh, of their idolatry. And uh, then, throughout the rest of the of the Old Testament, God begins again His program to use His people to be a blessing wherever they go. The Book of Exodus describes their journey out of the land of of Egypt down to Mount Sinai. The first 19 chapters of Exodus record that, that journey. Chapters 20 of Exodus, on through the book, the rest of the book of Exodus, all the way through Leviticus, through Numbers, chapter 9, they're at, at Sinai. There's no progress. And then uh, with chapter 10 of Numbers, they begin to journey up to Kadesh Barnea. And at the end of Numbers, they're over on the, the plains of Moab, about where the S is in Palestine on your map, or T, ready to enter the land. The book of Joshua describes their entrance into the land and their conquest of it. Judges, Samuel, kings, all have to do with the establishment of the monarchy. Judges points out the need for a king. There's no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You see, they have a nation, and they have a constitution, and they have a land, but they don't have a king. And so in Samuel, they're given a king, first Saul, the man of the flesh, and then David, the man after God's own heart. And the rest of the book of Kings then describe the progress of the monarchy until the whole thing collapses again, and God takes them into captivity. And they go off into Babylon to get the Canaanite cure. Now it's Babylon instead of Egypt. And then in Ezra and Nehemiah, you have the story of their return. Again, they become a nation. Again, they have a temple. They're worshiping at at Jerusalem. They have a constitution again. Ezra, the the great scribe, is the teacher of the law, but they don't have a king. That's the point of the book of Chronicles. There's no king in Israel until Jesus comes. And he becomes the king that Israel was looking for. Now, the point that I want you to see through the book of Genesis and on through the rest of the Bible is that God has a plan. Uh, You know... uh, this is a day when, uh, when history is being debunked and history is just in general bunked to people. There's no, no relevance to any events. It's just sort of meaningless things that, 
that happen in sequence, but they have no real meaning. But from Scripture, we know that God does have a plan, that uh, God has set out to save us. The Bible is the story of God's plan to bring salvation to the earth through his man, Jesus Christ. And, uh, and the time is coming when God will, will crush, serpent, uh, crush the serpent finally. He's now been crushed under Jesus' foot. But Paul says in Romans 16.20 that the time is coming when he'll crush Satan under your feet individually. We'll experience firsthand the victory that God has worked out in Christ. When I was a kid back in Texas, we used to go to the State Fair of Texas, and they always had a puppet show, which was sort of the big event for children. And and, uh, they always had a villain, you know, who attacked the the heroine, and the hero came in at the last minute to, uh, to save her. But uh, while the, the uh, villain was doing his, his worst, uh, cries of alarm and despair and boos and hisses would break out in the audience, you know, and he was allowed to sort of have his way for a period of time. And, you know, the world is like that. Shakespeare said the world is a stage and all the people are players, and he was, he was right on the truth. We think that the real events are the people on the stage, people like Jimmy Jones, Hitler, and others, the people who are doing all these terrible, dastardly things. These are, these are the enemy, but what we don't see is that behind the scenes there's a, there's a great puppeteer, a sinister villain who's out to destroy us. He's having his way back there. Man's uh, uh, way of handling the problem is to pick up a baseball bat and start beating on the puppet. And he smashes the puppet, and he thinks he's solved the problem, but, uh, but the puppeteer just picks up another puppet, another villain. And history grinds on year after year with one villain after another coming on the stage, and man tries to, tries to uh, solve his problems by destroying the puppet. But you see, what God has done is go behind the scenes with his baseball bat and, and pound on the puppeteer. And he said, all right, uh, you're finished. You've had it. I'm going to let history run on for a time, and uh, you, can, you can do your, your worst, but you're finished. And the time is coming when God is going to remove him from the scene and he'll set up his own kingdom, and he'll set things right. You know, I, I don't care how we vote or who we put our confidence in. There isn't a man on the face of the earth now, uh, no human on the face of the earth who can, who can set things right. Only the Lord Jesus can. And he's the one that we pin our hopes on. And that ought to help us. You know, we read the papers, and our tendency is to give way to despair, and we think, what in the world is the world coming to? Well, it's coming to God's great climax. It doesn't look like it, as you view the scene today. The, the villain is having his way. But the man behind the scenes has been judged. The prince of this world has been judged, God said. And now we see our kids being swept away by the world's ideas and thinking and, and the, the problem with, with drugs and alcoholism and all the other things that distress us so today. And, and we see world history in ruins. But God has a plan. And he's going to, he's going to fulfill his plan in Jesus Christ. That ought to give us hope. Let's stand together, shall we, and pray. Father, we sang...
earlier today, Come thou long expected Jesus. The world longed for him then. And we thank you that he came. And we long today for his second coming to set everything right. We thank you that he is the king. And we thank you that he reigns in our hearts. And he's the one who on a day-to-day basis sets things right in our homes, in our businesses, shops, farms. But we're, we're looking forward to the time when the world becomes what you intend it to be. And we thank you that you're doing it. We're glad that we can participate. Use us in any way you see fit, Father, to accomplish your will. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.